Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Weekly Insights podcast. Thanks very much for uh, listening in. Um, I'm delighted to say that I'm uh, joined today by Pia Sachdeva from uh, Keith Wade's economics team. Uh, Pia has particular expertise on Japan, and we're going to touch a little bit on on that. Uh, but also um, because the team has recently uh, changed its forecasts as we look into next year. And so this is a very timely moment to hear from Pia in terms of the team's thinking and what's been going on. But to begin with, just a very quick overview of uh, the weekend review, if you like. Um, so markets overall, uh, within the context of last week, uh, were slightly lackluster um, as we had more concerns about uh, the trade negotiations. And then suddenly, lo and behold, this weekend, uh, we've got rumors that maybe some sort of uh, negotiation will be achieved between China and the US. I think there's always skepticism around that. And that's created a more positive tone to, uh, to markets uh, as I speak to you on Tuesday morning. Um, and I think that this represents uh, the ebb and flow that we should must get used to. But underlying all of this um, is a sense that actually, as we're going to come on to talk um, to Pierre about in more detail, of uh, an environment that remains supportive of risk assets uh, and that possibly has a little bit more optimism, but on a relatively low scale, about next year, uh, given the ongoing benign monetary conditions. More specifically, uh, we had, of course, speaking of those monetary conditions, we had the Fed officials last week uh, declaring, in terms of their minutes, uh, that policy is currently, quote, well calibrated, um, and therefore they're happy to take a wait-and-see stance in terms of where we've got to. Uh, and within the U.S., notable that we had very good housing start data of 3.8% increase year-on-year year in October, uh, and also the building permits, obviously a leading indicator for eventual construction, uh, rising by 5% year-on-year, uh, year, which represents a new cycle high. Meantime, in the Eurozone, uh, data continues to be lackluster. I don't think anyone's surprised by that, though, and that's, uh, that's the key point. Uh, and here in the UK, um, we continue, obviously, to be distracted primarily by the run-up to the election, um, but the consensus at the moment from a market point of view, given the bounce that we've seen in sterling to the 128, 129 sort of level, um, is that uh, a Corbyn administration uh, is unlikely. But... Uh, anything can change. So with that, Pierre, uh, again, welcome. Great to have you here. Um, can I begin by asking uh, about the sort of headline forecasts um, that the team's been adjusting? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, as you said, we just published our, our forecasts and we've actually rolled it out to 2021 as, as well for the first time. Um, and it, it might be worth just summarising, you know, our starting process and starting um, forecast uh, last quarter, which was that we saw global growth slowing to 2.4%, which would be the weakest level of growth since 2008. Um, you know, very much driven by trade wars, the fading fiscal stimulus in the US, a profit squeeze in the US as well. Um, and that would then cause a bit of a moderation in, in US capex. Um, and, you know, this was pretty much painting a picture of secular stagnation that um, we were seeing the economy very much as a wobbly bike where, you know, I've, we've heard the analogy a lot, but, um, you know, you're driving the bike so slowly that, uh, you know, any bump in the road can really knock you off. And we, we saw a lot of downside risks to, to Accident growth. prone. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, our, our changes are on the, the more positive side this quarter. And so we revised up our global growth numbers from 2.4% to 2.6%. So um, we're definitely seeing a lot more stability going forward rather than a moderation in growth. And, um, and what's you know, driven that? The main driver for that has been um, a revision to our assumption in the trade wars. So, you know, as you said, we've we've been hearing a lot of news over the last few weeks. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we think that a phase one deal can happen. Uh, we think that Trump has a lot of incentive to do that ahead of the presidential election. Um, and, you know, the news flow, it's a bit noisy, but it continues to point to um, to a little bit of optimism on, on that side. And ultimately, that will then lift, um, you know, CapEx and also uh, exports would be a little bit more supportive as well. So the upgrade to growth is is quite broad across economies. So we've upgraded the US, upgraded Europe and Japan as well. Um, and while the actual GDP number for China stays the same, uh, unofficial sort of China forecast is upgraded. Um, you know, Craig looks at his activity indicator, which you know, we think is a better gauge of, of actual Chinese activity. So in terms of the phase one deal, um, what do you think the kind of uh, likely characteristics of it might be? So we see, I mean, we, we think that um, there will still be problems around intellectual property um, and export subsidies as well. But we think that um, it would basically say that we won't have an increase in tariffs in, in December. And so mid, you know, the mid-December deadline for a potential more... Um, potential tariff increases is going to be important um, and so in terms of how we're thinking the news flow just before that and whether those tariffs go up will be important in terms of how we're seeing the forecast. Right and as far as um, therefore what the Fed was saying last week in terms of therefore let's just wait and see you know, on hold for, for a while now we think what we've done given leads and lags you know, we've moved obviously to a much more accommodative start compared to where we were at the start of the year uh, that the scenario that you've painted that would still have the same implications for rates, I, as in on hold. So we, I mean, we still think that the Fed can cut rates uh, at the beginning of next year. Um, you know, the market's beginning to price that out now. Um, you know, given some of the communication from the Fed in the minutes suggested that too. Um, you know, we we think that inflation will still continue to rise. So we have core inflation increasing to around 2.5% at the beginning, uh, first half of next year. Um, but headline will still be a little bit dampened by oil prices. Um, so, you know, inflation will continue to rise, but not necessarily cause a problem for the Fed. Meanwhile, we still have growth slowing. So we think that below trend growth for the US still means that the Fed can cut rates. And then we see them then standing, stepping on the sidelines ahead of the presidential election because you know, normally they don't sort of like to, to really change policy to look like they're influencing the election. So therefore, any, uh, any action would tend to happen in the early stage of the year before the campaigns really get underway. Exactly, yeah. And you touched um, briefly on, on, on Europe a moment ago uh, in terms of that you've revised up Europe slightly. Uh, and it's interesting to notice some of the recent strength in, uh, in European equity markets. Um, and, and also we've got this um, slight style rotation that's been underway now for a couple of, uh, couple of months almost now. Um, what's, um, uh, what's the team's sense of, uh, how can I put it, the durability of that sort of shift in sentiment towards Europe? Because, as I said you know, in my introduction, at the moment, the data, PMIs and so on, and the, are on their knees. 
Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, we've seen the value rotation in Japan as well. Um, and I think you know a lot of that is to do with um, valuations in the US and just how stretched that relative valuation between the US and other cyclical markets like Europe and Japan, um, how stretched that valuation is. Um, I think it really comes down to what you think markets are pricing in terms of the economic outlook. And at that point, you know, a month or so ago, um, the the markets did seem to be pricing quite a pessimistic outlook. And so, as opposed margin, to just bumping along. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if markets, if investors then didn't expect a full blown recession, then actually it was looking like quite an attractive entry points for many investors. And so, right. um, you know, if we were to see some sort of economic stabilization, then um, you know it, we could see then equities perform. So, what sort of number has the team got for for, for Euro, the eurozone next year? For growth, yeah. So we have one point two percent in twenty twenty, um, and then one point four percent in twenty twenty one. So you know, part of the the divergence in, in the growth stories is, is an interesting one for investors and is probably also why we're beginning to see that rotation. So now can we move on to, to, to Japan, taking advantage of, of you <laughs> being here? So there have been, you used the phrase earlier, um, secular stagnation, which now we're saying um, possibly is not the case with this modest um, upward revisions that you've been um, describing. Um, clearly Japan has you know, been famous, uh, if that's the right word, for lost decades of, of growth, uh, and yet Arbonomics, you know, continues, and he's now, whatever he is, one of the longest-serving prime ministers ever. Um, first of all, maybe just bring us up to date with what is going on in Japan. And then secondly, um, I'd be very interested to hear what you think the lessons are from Japan, and perhaps as appositely, what the lessons aren't for the rest of the world. Uh, so firstly, yeah, just starting with... Uh, how the Japanese economy has evolved over the past year or so. Uh, it's a similar story to Europe in that a lot of the weakness has been in the manufacturing sector. Uh, it's very very much being caught in the middle of the US-China trade war. Lots of Japanese firms are in the supply chain to Chinese exports to the, to the US and so have been, have been impacted. Uh, and so a lot of the weakness has really been on the external side. And meanwhile, the government has been... Um, preparing for the VAT hike, which came through in October. Uh, and so there are a lot of questions over how uh, resilient the Japanese economy will will be um, as VAT is hiked. It's happened two times before, and both times Japan has gone into recession. So, um, you know, at the, the moment, signs are okay. Activity is fairly, um, fairly weak. But, um, you know, this just shows that the... Uh, the long-term demographic factors that mean that the government has to f uh, raise finances for social security for, and so on, and high debt levels that Japan has, um, you know, is really impacting the economy. And in an external, vulnerable environment, they're still going ahead with the VAT hike. So it's been an interesting time to, to look at Japan. Absolutely. Um, and then the kind of classic thing is you've had, the I think it was Abe's, um, Abe Sands Three Arrows, wasn't it? Um, monetary policy, fiscal stimulus, and then structural reform. Yeah. Um, how do you grade each three of the three? <laughs> uh, and so, so after the crash in the asset price bubble in the '90s, Japan very much um, you tried to use fiscal stimulus and went out, you know, and spent 
um, significant proportions of GDP every year. Um, that didn't necessarily work. Um, although, you know, as Abos tried it again, if we crunch some of the growth numbers, it does suggest that fiscal stimulus has been an important factor in, in driving Japanese growth. On the monetary policy side, you know, obviously the BOJ has been extremely aggressive. Um, you know, interest rates are in negative territory. The Bank of Japan buys equities. You know, um, they see themselves as being the pioneers of monetary policy, and other central banks like the Fed and ECB really do look to the BOJ for for lessons. Um, you know, inflation is still exceptionally low in Japan, and therefore, you know, we can say that potentially monetary policy was un unsuccessful. And even this week, we have the IMF really calling for the Bank of Japan to um, to remove its inflation target or at least lower its inflation target. Um, but I'd give an A for effort on the BOJ on the BOJ side, and then the you know the structural reform is it's a difficult one to to grade. But I think the main the the main thing I point to to say it has been some sort of success would be how Abe has really lifted the participation rate of in the labour force of, of women, female and, as well. Yeah. Exactly, and yeah. so um, you know to to lift that and really to get. What's happened is Japan has been extremely successful in increasing employment growth whilst having a shrinking working age population um, by getting more women and older people in the workforce. And and therefore, um, given uh, the very lacklustre picture, but of course, um, by some um, social measures, you know, Japan has been fine in terms of mm. despite very lacklustre growth for an extended period of time. Uh, what do you think... Um, the ramifications are uh, for the West, um, given lackluster growth, fears of deflation in some areas, um, stagnating incomes, etc. What, what, what do you think um, is relevant to the West and, and what do you think importantly is not? I think... Um, you know, I, I have at the back in my mind the whole kind of Japanification kind of line of argument yeah. and that we're all going to be turning Japanese. Yeah, I mean, so Azad and I did a lot of work looking at, you know, whether Europe is becoming Japan and, you know, our, our conclusions broadly were that the outcome for Europe looks very similar to Japan. So, you know, low growth, low interest rates, low inflation. Aging population. Uh, exactly. Um, but you can also point to many economies that, you know, including the US, that the outcome looks very similar. The process seems to have been a bit different, though. So uh, in terms of what caused growth to really slow in Japan through the 90s was a collapse in investment. Um, and Japan lost a phenomenal amount of wealth after the crashing asset price bubble. Uh, so over 200% of GDP are lost. And so I think Japan sh really shows how you can have secular stagnation, so not just stagnation that were potentially in, in uh, the US and Europe. And so it, you know, it's been through decades of deflation. Um, and I think Japan, you know, it is concerning in that it shows how entrenched expectations can become. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're seeing hints of this from from the Fed when they're saying, well, actually, we think inflation should overshoot its target uh, and just a willingness for inflation to be a little bit higher so that we don't fall into this deflationary spiral and a deflationary mindset, as the Japanese call it. I think, it. and maybe also... Um, the stance in the states towards the banking sector was very different from the eurozone stance towards its banking sector I and mean, kicking and screaming we had recapitalizations and such like um and which definitely has echoes of japanese denial um with you know, knock-on disinflationary forces would you agree with that 
yeah, I, I'd agree. And I think, um, you know, the implications of having negative interest rates also means that, you know, the European financial sector and Japanese financial sector are going through uh, through similar things in terms of, um, you know, it's pressure on net, net interest margins and the need to, to generate return in other ways. But then again, it is still an environment which is, from an investment standpoint, knowing what we know, um, that uh, still does present investment opportunities. Yeah, and I think you know Japanese equities, for example, um, you know you can see that you can generate returns in in that space. And even though um, some people would like Japan to be growing at a faster rate, doesn't necessarily mean that you can't make returns in in that space. And that's something that we're we're going to see in Europe as well. Well, and you've highlighted um, the role that Japanese companies play in global supply chains, and obviously that's very true for German companies as uh, as well. Um, Pierre, sadly, we're running out of time, but that was very interesting to, to hear about the, the ongoing context that Japan is, uh, is set in. Um, if I just kind of recap very briefly, um, first of all, I think the important thing is that, that the uh, central forecast for next year is being revised up slightly um, based on uh, the expectation of a phase one, at least, uh, trade uh, deal between uh, the US and China. And of course, that's something that's affected sentiment uh, a great deal. I think it's fair to say that right now there's a level of expectations already built into the market for that. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, on the back of that, uh, because of the interconnectedness of the global economy and the importance of that bilateral relationship, that has ancillary benefit for parts of the Eurozone, notably Germany, of course, um, but also, as we've just been discussing uh, in detail, Japan. Um, Next, as far as Japan itself is concerned, uh, Japan continues to eke out growth um, on the back of uh, very benign monetary policy um, uh, and also uh, the past uh, fiscal stimulus, which uh, happens in bouts, uh, and levels of structural reform with the increase in female participation in the labor force being something that Pierre has highlighted uh, especially. And then finally, in terms of implications for the, for the rest of the world in terms of um, stagnation. Maybe uh, the lessons that need to be heeded are those around an aging population um, uh, and also uh, witness the different responses, uh, as I was suggesting, around uh, the banking sector, compare and contrast the US uh, and the Eurozone uh, relative to what's happened historically in Japan and the speed with which bad debts uh, have been acknowledged. Um, but with uh, with that, um, the overall sense is uh, lower growth, um, but it is still growth. And so, yes, the bicycle isn't going very fast, um, but provided it's ridden reasonably carefully, albeit at this pace, uh, accidents can still be avoided. And that really is what's setting the tenor of the mood music in markets at the moment. So, Pierre, with that, thank you again very much indeed. Really appreciate your time. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, and that concludes this week's episode of the podcast. Thanks again. Thank you.